Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Last episode, we mentioned that Richmond Group had posted a loss in profits of 67% so far this year. And it turns out the article that we were referencing there was a, a little misleading, or, or more so the, the accountants at Richmond were being a, a little misleading. And uh, Hodinkee was a, a little clearer when uh, they posted about the numbers. And the 67% is artificially high due to an accounting gain involving their acquisition of Ux and Netapote in the previous fiscal year. So ex- excluding that, they, the drop is actually 34%. But still, a third of profits wiped out by, by the virus is, is pretty significant. Yeah, that, that is sort of a little bit more in line with what I've been hearing from people in the jewelry industry, though. Uh, when you consider that basically the first quarter of the, of the year for almost a third of a year has basically been wiped out in terms of sales. You know, it's not it's not that far off from what uh, what I've been hearing from the jewelry industry. So that, that's a little bit more in line with uh, with the rest of the world, but still significant. It's still it's a lot of money to recover. I mean, they, they certainly have plenty of cash on hand, though. So yeah. I, I think they'll be just I, they'll probably fine. survive. Yeah. So oh, things are, are relaxing up here a little bit where we are in, in terms of uh, restrictions and, and lockdowns. So uh, I had a chance to pop over the, to the studio and uh, see some of what you've, you've been up to. And I can see you have, you have some new toys. Yeah, there's been a, a few changes since the last time you were in here. And now uh, we've added a, a few more toys. Some of them we've talked about already. Things like the uh, plasma cutter we've already talked about a little bit. And but since even since we last recorded, I've added uh, added some new toys as well. Got a new uh, a new three D printer here in the shop. Ended up adding the Form Labs Form Three printer. People have been listening for a while. They'll remember I've I've talked about SLA printing before, and I have actually had an SLA printer in the past from MakeX. It was a Kickstarter project a few years ago that I backed, and you know it was a reasonable little resin printer, particularly for the price that I paid for it. Uh, but it certainly had its limitations. One of them was build volume. One of them was uh, accuracy. Uh, but at the time, there really wasn't a lot that was out on the market that I was impressed enough with to sort of pay for without going into an extravagant amount of money. And uh, the Form 3 printer, I guess, was announced uh, March last year, sometime around there. And it certainly looked impressive with um, the technology they were they were using. They had this uh, low-force stereolithography technique that they're using now, uh, which reduces the forces on the model as it's printing. And that's made a big difference in terms of the print quality. Uh, One of the problems with SLA printers is you tend to get a little bit of stretching in certain resins as the model is releasing from the, uh, the build surface. It tends to sort of pull. And if there's enough surface area there, it can sort of stretch that that resin, which isn't entirely cured yet. And so you get a sort of an elongation of the parts as you're printing. And that's, you know, it's not enough that most people are really worried about it, but it is still enough that it was noticeable, particularly in some of my cases where I'm I'm using repetitive patterns that are geometric in shape or, uh, you know, I've got dimensions that are actually important that, that need to be there. So uh, it certainly had its limitations. But with the new Form 3, they've um, they've done a few things to change that. And there's also a bunch of other little things that make it nice. You know, it's got a uh, it's got a, a heater in the build chamber, so the resin stays at an ideal temperature when it's uh, when it's printing, which is 
you know, something that, that I was having problems with as well. Uh, the other one didn't have any kind of a heater in it. So it, if, you know, I couldn't print through the winter with it because it was, you know, the resin was always getting too cold and whatnot. But yeah, so far, I guess I've had it up and running a couple of days now. Managed to do a couple of prints. Got one in there now that I'm, I'm curious to see. That's uh, for some watch parts or watch case parts, I should say. And uh, we'll see how it uh, how it comes out. Do you know, going with the, that lug style from Langenzona that we, we talked about a while back? Yeah, I think that I will. Uh, I, I still haven't decided if I'm going to do that for the stainless steel versions of them. Uh, this works really well in cases that I can cast uh, because I can print a, a lug that, um, that's actually easily cast. For the ones in stainless steel, if I'm going to do that, it'll mean that I need to machine them in that sort of shape. And that starts to present a few additional challenges uh, with the tools that I've got. So I'll, I'll take a look and see. It's, um, I haven't had a chance to try milling any of that 316L on my uh, tag mill uh, yet. So once I get that up and running and configured, I'll give it a try and see how they come out. If, uh, you know, if they come out reasonably well and I can get the hand finishing sort of at the end down to a reasonable amount, then I'll, uh, I'll probably do it because it certainly makes it, my life a lot easier when it comes to how I can, you know, sort of assemble the case afterwards and keep everything aligned. Mm-hmm. Hey, do you think it'd be feasible to, say, rough out that the H form on the plasma cutter and, and then weld that mm-hmm. to, to the case pan? Yeah, it's probably not something that the plasma cutter would be ideal for. I think it may be something where I can sort of do some roughing on it and leave a fair bit of material and then mill mm-hmm. the last bit. Maybe... Uh, I'm not sure that it would be worth it, though, for the for the extra speed that it would get me. The plasma cutter is great, but it doesn't have really that level of accuracy. Yeah, we'd have to see. I, I, I'm going to give it a try. Um, same thing with roughing out the, the sort of the circular blanks for the bezels, right? I can sit there and try that and, and see if I can rough those out on the, the plasma cutter. I'll still have some material left that I have, you know, a fair bit of material left that I have to turn. And I'll have to see if the ragged edges from it are too much for the lathe to be happy with it you know it might be that my tooling really doesn't like the interrupted cuts from the uh, the edges at the same time it would also be a lot easier than drilling out the the center of it and then you know turning away all that material that i uh, that i have to get rid of to get the inside diameter of those uh, those bezels now you mentioned the the upgrade in, in build volume going mm. to the form three and I, I noticed you didn't go with the form three l so so what played into to that decision uh, well. the, the form three versus the form three l <laughs> cost was a significant part yeah. of it let's see the form three i think is about thirty five hundred dollars u s the form three l i want to say is somewhere around ten grand you know so obviously just from a pure cost point of view there's a significant difference in cost on top of that i don't need to be able to print my own head in terms of you know in a single shot and be able to cast that i i don't in fact i couldn't cast that i don't have a of the facilities to cast something that large so the overall build volume for a single object wasn't important and even with this thing i can still print more than enough in a day to keep me busy for weeks in terms of casting it and then finishing the, the parts and whatnot so this is uh this is probably four times the xy build volume of my last printer and on top of that it's probably 50 percent more in the z-axis so it's a, a fair fair upgrade in terms of the overall build volume and the the prints you've shown me so far look, look pretty good yeah I wasn't as impressed with the, the surface finish on the flats but i mean certainly compared to something like an fdm printer yeah. sla is always gonna gonna beat it out and uh, i imagine once you actually get parts cast and, and the finish put on them then uh, all those hints as to the fact that it has been 3d printed will will disappear 
Yeah, and when you look at the flats, that, that's something that can be mitigated through different angles. Um, you know, in terms of the build angle of the model, uh, you can change that up a little bit. And in some cases, I would actually rather have small artifacts in the flat surfaces uh, than in other places because it's very easy for me to clean up those flat surfaces. Uh, in the case of the cufflinks that you were looking at, it's actually based on the pattern that's in my Jaipur pen, and those are ones that I actually fill with Miello. So the um, the surface inconsistencies that you're seeing at the bottom of the pattern, those are not a problem because they're going to be filled with Miello, and the ones that are on the top surface, those are going to be filed anyways as I clean up the the top surface of uh, you know where the Miello is going. So at the end of the day, I don't care about those flat surfaces. So the trick is you know. The, with any manufacturing process, there's always going to be some kind of a limitation. There's always going to be some kind of a compromise. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about lasers, you know, CNC equipment, um, even um, really fine level stereolithography that they're doing in the in the watch industry right now for, Liga? for printing. Yeah, Liga. Um, you know, even if you're dealing with with something like that, there are still a number of limitations. There's always going to be something that that you have to clean up afterwards. Maybe it's a place to work hold. Um, you know, in this case, it's um, uh, grow lines in some cases. Um, also where the uh, supports attach to the model. All of those things are things that you have to deal with. And I have to deal with them everywhere, right? It doesn't really matter what I'm, what I'm doing. There's always some kind of a, a limitation. Even when it comes to the, the, en- the straight line engine, I have to be concerned about how I hold that work on the engine so that I don't deform the piece that I, you know, that I can actually make the cut the entire length of what I needed to, because if I hold it too close, then the cutter gets in the way of the fixture and all that. So, you know, this is just another, another process that I have to figure out where, you know, where to compensate for and what the best way is of, of, of using it so that I can clean up the faults that it has as fast as possible. Either you know, put those faults in a location where it doesn't matter. Or in some cases, you know, again, put them on something like a flat surface where I can sit there afterwards with the file, a couple of quick passes with the file, and it's perfectly flat surface again anyways. So, um, you know, it's just a question of, of experimenting and seeing what works best and what doesn't. The nice thing is that I'm not printing one-off parts all the time. Anything that I've put on here is going to be something that I print on a regular basis. So, I'm going to be able to experiment with it and play with different orientation, different geometry, different supports, see what works best. And then I can, you know, I can just use that going forward. Mm-hmm. And try and mitigate what little stretch is still yeah. evident there in, in the form three. And and when I look at the, you know, the, the pattern, in this case, it's a little flower pattern that's on the face of the cufflink. This is something that I've manufactured using a CNC mill as well as with a 3D printer. And... In each of those cases, I have had some variance in that pattern. And because it is a, it's a symmetrical pattern, it really stands out when something isn't right. When, you know, a detail isn't crisp, a curve isn't the same radius as the matching curve on the other side of the piece. And it, it becomes obvious. Now, in some cases, it's, it's such a small amount that nobody other than me really notices. Um, but the quality of that flower that's in this piece is as close to perfect as I think I'm ever going to be able to get with it other than maybe laser you know laser engraving it it is it is absolutely perfect you can look and see the geometry is the same on all sides the radiuses are the same nice sharp 
straight edges going down into the into the cavity. So, you know, things like the the build the ultimate build quality on let's say the back of the the part that's far less relevant to me than making sure that the pattern that I actually care about looks great and in this case the pattern looks perfect and that's what you know that's really what's most important so given that this is a pattern derived from centuries old artifacts and, and structures do you have to know how the, the original artisans would have executed these patterns on the where you found them these particular patterns came from uh, marble work that was on the walls in the red fort in Jaipur. And so they were cutting them. First off, these, you know, I'm rendering this flower. I want to say that it's probably, say, like 14 millimeters in diameter, 13 millimeters in diameter, something like that. Um, they were rendering them in, you know, on a wall. I don't know. They were probably 60, 70 centimeters across. So a huge difference in terms of scale. And then because they were putting them in marble, they had the ability to cut that marble very, very sharp, you know, very sharp detail and inset it into another piece of marble that was perfectly cut to receive it. So, you know, in the case of, of what they were doing, they were at, these were actually quite large sort of macro details in a, a, a fort that has very, very fine detail and, and very, very fine marble work. So this probably would have been done by, you know, lower quality or lower skilled uh, apprentices because it's okay we need that wall decorated go at it here's a border that you can do you know it doesn't involve fine detail work you know that's within your skill level so i'm taking that detail and i'm rendering it down to a, a much smaller level and also one that you look at in a much finer detail so you know i'm i have to i'm struggling a little bit with getting all of those details absolutely perfect and in fact I, even then i've simplified it from the original it doesn't quite, you know, the petal sort of flower that's in the center doesn't have the same number of petals on it. Uh, there's actually a pip in the middle of the original, and I've taken that out because it just doesn't render well at the scale that I'm using it. But it comes out looking good, you, you know, even when you reduce it down. Mm. Yeah, scaling it down, you're also scaling down the, the tolerances that they had to work with. Yeah, exactly. And right by the, the brand shiny new printers is also your brand shiny new watchmaker's bench finally got that up and, and running yeah it's not very shiny but it, it is brand new there, and... there is a halo above it what do you mean it's not shiny it's just it's, it's a glow being, a glow yeah <laughs> a glow yeah. to it yeah i i was able to get that up and running uh late last week i guess and uh as i as i've commented on instagram yesterday it um it very quickly became covered in junk there, there was a photo of it with nothing on it except for my iPad. And minutes after that photo was taken, it was covered in tools and movements and things like that. So uh, I have already started to move into it. And uh, as you say, there's a halo over it. I, I installed an LED light over top of it, and I've got a frame system that sort of comes off the back of it. Uh, if uh, if you remember when we've talked about it before, my, my new bench is using a standing desk and so that I can adjust the height of it to exactly where it is that I want to be able to work. And one of the things that concerned me was having light at a constant um, sort of level, uh, both intensity level and um, sort of illumination level over my bench. You know, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to be changing as I moved the bench up and down. So I've built this, uh, this frame off the back of it that will move with the bench top. So that light will always stay at a consistent height over the bench. And I don't have to worry about uh, changing the intensity levels as I move it. Now you mentioned your your iPad being on the the watchmaker's bench there. Mm -hmm. I, I see you you now have your your shiny new 
Well, that, this time I'm being facetious. It is a very dull, <laughs> matte, new yeah. keyboard case for the, the brand new iPads. Yeah, they finally released the um, the keyboard for the uh, the new iPads Pro. And I decided to pick one up because I picked up one of the new iPads and I was missing the keyboard that I had. I had one of the bridge keyboards with my last iPad Pro. And it was okay. Um, I wasn't in love with the keyboard itself. Wasn't in love with the form factor of it. Apparently, the new generation of bridge keyboards are fairly problematic with um, their trackpad and stuff like that on them. So I wanted to try out something a little bit different. I, you know, the new one that Apple came out with actually looked pretty good. Their, their previous generation one didn't, um, didn't really appeal to me. I wasn't really that impressed with it. Uh, I tried out a couple of them, and I'm, it didn't really strike me as a great keyboard. Um, this one is different. It's, um, you know, we've talked about design compromises in the past and every design has some kind of a compromise. You, you have to make decisions about what you're prioritizing over, over something else. And in this case, you know, they've prioritized certain things. Uh, weight wasn't a priority for them. So the keyboard cover is actually pretty heavy compared to other keyboards, you know, and that's something that you have to decide whether that's actually, you know, an important thing for you and whether the, that extra weight is too much. It's reasonably adjustable in terms of getting the angle at a, you know, the screen angle at an angle that's comfortable for you. And it's pretty good. It's not perfect. You know, there are people who've said, oh, it would be great if it could open up as much as my MacBook does. Well, you know, it's not a MacBook. It's it, because of its setup and design, it's not going to be able to open as much as that. You know, for me, the way that I use my iPad, it's pretty good. I'm, um, I'm, I, I'm about as happy with it as I think I could be in in terms of the quality of the keyboard, in terms of the the ergonomics, the you know how it opens and things like that. It's been you know it's been pretty good. The trackpad is great. Um, you know, it'd be nice if it was a bit larger, but again, there are limitations to how large it can be because of the size of the device that it's connecting to. Um, some people have complained there's no function keys at the top. Well, again, there's a limitation to how large this keyboard can be without you know, getting into being larger than the device that it's connected to. And so, again, it's not a perfect thing. And um, there are certainly people out there who will, it will not be for them. Um, but uh, I'm, I've been extremely impressed with it. It's been, uh, it's been pretty good so far. Yeah, the weight to me seems like a, a necessary part of, of the design of this particular keyboard so that it can cantilever the, the iPad itself up like that. Because if, if it wasn't that heavy... Very quickly have your, your iPad toppling over. I've been using it in bed and stuff like that. And, you, you know, you're, it's lying on your lap in bed and it doesn't take much for it to tip over backwards. Um, you know, it just needs to be tipped back slightly and it goes. It's not perfect. Um, they've made reasonable decisions in terms of how they've designed it. And I think if, if, you're, if it's something that you look at and you go, hey, that, that looks appealing to me, it's worth trying out. I don't think there's a better keyboard in terms of tactile feel out there right now you know and and it has a lot of other benefits if you're looking for the absolute lightest possible keyboard for traveling with this certainly isn't it but at the same time i think that it's probably a reasonable trade-off uh it's certainly not enough extra weight that i'm unwilling to uh, you know travel with it that's for sure uh, given the the constraints on the the actual mouse pad area the trackpad area um would you now that you've had a taste of, of using iPad OS with the the mouse input or the, the trackpad input? Would you go so far as to eventually add a a, a mouse to to your setup or a standalone trackpad to your uh, setup? 
I would never add a mouse to it, I don't think, but a trackpad maybe. So the funny thing is that this is the, one of the ideal situations with this is if you want to use it as a docking station. It, it does have a USB-C port on the side that you can plug into for charging. And when you put the iPad on it, the iPad will just start charging. So I, I've spoken to a few people who have done that. They have actually set theirs up. It's on a desk and they, you know, they drop their iPad onto it and they start typing away and it's perfect for that. Uh, and in that sort of a scenario, yeah, maybe I'd add a trackpad to it. Uh, I don't use the trackpad a lot, occasionally for, you know, sort of as a, as a pointer. I find that the lack of height in the trackpad surface means that some things like uh, pinch to zoom, for instance, is awkward. It's expecting your fingers to move a certain amount before the, you know, the zoom or the whatever, the reduction in size before that kicks in. And I find that it's difficult often to get that quite, you know, that right, that sort of the balance of how far do I move my fingers apart while they're still on the trackpad. Uh, so there's things like that, which, which isn't ideal. Uh, it is great for doing multi-finger gestures for swiping between apps and things like that. It is actually really useful for that. And I, so I find that I use it probably most for that in terms of swiping back and forth, going up to the, the home screen, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but as an actual pointer for doing things, I don't find it particularly convenient for that, but I don't think it's the fault of the trackpad. It's just, you know, I prefer my finger. And oftentimes if I want the accuracy that you're probably going to get out of a trackpad, I'm going to go to my, my pencil anyways. Uh, it's going to be better for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard to beat the pencil on the iPad. Yeah. Yeah. That is one thing I would, I will say, I wish that there was a, a better setup for holding the pencil onto the iPad in the case because the pencil attaches with magnets on the side of the iPad, but it's on the outside of where the case is and it's very easy to get bumped off. So, you know, if I'm putting it into my my backpack, for instance, when I'm coming into the studio, that pencil can get knocked off easily enough. Now it's inside of a pouch in the back of my bag. It's not going to get lost, but it would be nice if there was somewhere, you know, sort of that it was a little bit, a little bit more protected from, you know, being knocked off. Uh, that would be that would be one thing I would ask them to do. But at the same time, it's also not a lot of room in this. And if you start making allowances for that, you know, where what else are you compromising on? So, you know, they may have tried different things like that and they found that the compromise just wasn't worth it. Earlier, you alluded to removing traces of, of handiwork from things that you're manufacturing. Mm. And recently, Google Forza, in partnership with the Watches TV, released a, a series of videos showcasing what it takes to actually make a a fine timepiece using exclusively hand-driven tools. They did a really great series of videos talking about how they make the Handmade One, which was, uh, I guess, a project that Gribble Forzy did last year. They decided to make it using entirely traditional techniques. uh, So there was no CNC work being done on it, um, you know, no Liga printing, no 3D printing, uh, you know, no wire EDM, nothing like that. It was all being done by hand. And it was interesting listening to some of the technicians talking about how much of a shift it was for them to manufacture things that way. And it's sort of funny because, I I mean, I know you're in the same boat as I am where you're doing most of what you do manually. And even though I have CNC equipment here, I do a lot of manual turning and I do a lot of manual milling. And so it was it was sort of amusing to me to hear them talking about that. And I'm like, well, that's not a big deal. Like that's, You do that every day, right? And then I'm like, no. You're a CNC machine operator. You're not machining things by hand. You're not, you know, you're not going to be 
you know, turning anything, but you're not turning balance staves by hand ever. You're setting up a Swiss, Swiss lathe for turning hundreds of these, of these balances. And so, yeah, it was interesting listening to them talk about that. And I keep forgetting that my, you know, sort of my view of the watch industry is very different than a manufacturer, even one as small as Grubel Forzi. They're still producing things at a large enough scale that they cannot turn everything by hand. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting listening to them talk about that. Yeah, hearing the the one technician talk about how they were having difficulty, the fact that, that certain materials would, would develop sort of a hard layer on on the surface and then soften up on the inside, yeah. and the, so that they went with with nickel silver, which has been used for for centuries for for a good reason because it is uh, relatively simple to machine, although very susceptible to to fingerprints and the like. But yeah, that, that gave me a, a little chuckle as well because that's just not something you are going to be attuned to in any way when you're working with CNC machines. No, of course not. And you also have the advantage of things like coolant, right? Flood coolant mm-hmm. and, you know, ideal tool paths. And you can, you know, you can control things like, you know, down to like chip thinning and acceleration of your, cur- you know, of your cutter as you go through curves and high speed machine paths. All of these things that we now know about machining and that help us, especially with micro machining, like when, as you get down to a smaller and smaller part, the fundamentals of machining actually become significantly more important even though it's not a large part and it's not dangerous if something goes wrong with it, because of the percentage of tolerances that you're dealing with now, getting things right in micro-machining, getting your feeds and speeds right is, is very, very important. But that's easy to do on a CNC machine because you can dial it in and you can say, all right, I want to turn this at, you know, let's say one millimeter per second. And if that's not quite right, you can say, all right, well, I'm going to try turning it at 1.2 millimeters per second. Well, the average person can't you know, can't make that adjustment when they're manually cranking a, a dial on a, on a lathe. That's just not the sort of thing they have, have the ability to do. Or if they're, let's say, milling out the, the main plate, like that comment about the, the nickel silver, they're going to be machining that on a jig bore and they're going to be manually cranking that. Well, you know, they don't necessarily know off the top of their head how deep a cut they should take or how fast they should turn the rotary table so that they get a good chip as they're, they're machining it. It's, there's a feel to machining by hand. And if you're not in that habit, you know, you, you just don't know it. You know, I get to know my machines well, so I know exactly how much I should be forcing that cutter into the material, how quickly it should be coming off, what the chip looks like when it comes off, all those things. And that's just not something that you're going to be able to do well if you're not used to it. Mm-hmm. And you'll be able to pick up on, on when your tool is, is dulling to the yeah. point that it, you need to sharpen it again. As well, just in the way that the, the chips are, are forming and whatnot as well, and, and how responsive the the cut is mm-hmm. uh, as you're pressing into the material. Yeah, and I, one of the things that I'm, I look at a lot, it does, you know, it's not so useful on things like brass and nickel silver, but on steel, I look at the color of the chip that's coming off. Mm. I look at the color as it comes off of the part, and I also look at the, the color of it after it, it's finished cooling in the chip tray. And that can tell me a lot about how I'm machining and whether I'm turning fast enough. One of the problems with machining is that you are generating a huge amount of force and therefore a huge amount of uh, heat is being built up. And that's one of the reasons why they were getting the, um, you know, that, that crusty, that hard layer on, on stuff because it was work hardening mm-hmm. or it was um, heat hardening as, you were, as they were turning some of those, those uh, materials. And one of the reasons they were probably getting that was because they probably weren't machining aggressively enough. If you get the right feeds and speeds, 
the chip will come off and it will actually pull heat away from the part. And that's an important part of, of heat management in machining. So if you're turning something and your chips, let's say your steel chips are coming off and they're silver when they come off, then all of the heat that's building up is building up in the part that you're turning from. If those are coming off and they're blue, then that means that the heat's actually building up in the chip as it's coming off and that's and it's pulling that heat away from the part. And so you can get a sense of what's going on and you can see, you know, whether the, the chip is blue or purple, um, you know, sort of how much you can, how much heat you're pulling off of that and allow for those variances. And then you know that if it's getting up into like a, a brown, you know that you've got too much heat coming off of that and you actually need to back off a little bit and, and slow down your cutting speed. So these are all things that you learn as a manual machinist that you won't necessarily learn as you're, you know, as you're operating a CNC machine. And this is you know, exactly the the sort of thing that Grupo Forzi is endeavoring to to capture through this, mm-hmm. this process of actually going down this path. Years ago, they they had teased the the, the Aeon Alliance that Grupo Forzi is a part of uh, had teased that they would be making a, a video of, of what it takes to actually make a watch by hand. And, and mm-hmm. I I wonder in a sense if uh, this partnership with the Watches TV is the the fruition of that. Or whether there is still something even more in depth uh, still still in store. I really hope that this is just the teaser to that. I think that this this may be the teaser because I don't. Th- there was enough footage from the entire process, and I don't think the Watches TV crew were there through the entire build process. So I'm hoping that that footage that they captured was part of those videos that they were talking about, and that there's something more in depth and longer. Because as nice as this was, it you know for somebody like me, and I'm sure for you, more details, please, more details, near yeah. enough detail, yeah. So I, I really hope that this continues and that they they have something more detailed than that. Mm, yeah, I agree 100 percent with with that sentiment. I hope it doesn't sound in any way that we're uh, looking down on or, or berating in any way. Absolutely not. We I look up 100 percent to uh, Group of Four Z and and their crew and. Mm. Uh, being a CNC operator is a—it is a craft unto itself. Oh yeah, and uh, you know, pre- preventing your machine from eating itself, and <laughs> uh, you know, making sure that parts aren't, aren't flying off or, or not being machined with intolerances or being damaged while being machined, like all these things and these factors are stuff that uh, when, when you're doing things by hand, you—it's just more more innate. You're, you're more in tune with what what you're doing, uh, but when you you separate yourself. There's a whole other layer of abstraction that you need to be thinking through mm-hmm. uh, as a CNC operator. And CNC operators will, will approach uh, problems in, in different ways from your more traditional machinists. And that there are aspects and, and strengths to, to both sides. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say uh, I, I deeply admire anyone who has a, a good handle on both sides. And going through an exercise like this is going to put these, these operators in, in that sort of gamut. You're right. The skill of being a CNC operator is a whole separate skill set, and it is also extremely impressive. Being able to do that properly, being able to do that well, is certainly uh, a different skill than operating a, a manual machine. And it is just as challenging as operating a manual machine, for sure. It has different challenges, but it is uh, it's still a very, very highly skilled job. And I find that learning, whichever one you are, if you're a manual machinist, learning CNC machining, or a CNC machinist who's learning manual machining, you're going to learn your craft better by knowing the other side of it. I, I know a lot of old timers, you know, who will comment on threads on the internet will say, oh, you know, you should learn to be a manual machinist before you become a CNC operator. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that a, um, a CNC operator 
can learn how to become a great machinist without understanding the manual side of things. But at some point or another, they, you, there are things that you are going to learn from manual machining that you will never learn from CNC machining. At the same time, being a CNC machinist has made me a better manual machinist as well. I now have a much better understanding of feeds and speeds and depths of cut and things like that than I ever did as a manual machinist because a lot of manual machinists are lazy. And they're just like, oh, well, I've always turned at this speed, and so I'm just going to keep turning at that speed. And you don't really appreciate how much of a difference um, things like the, um, you know, the, the speed of the material coming past your cutter actually affects things like the quality of the cut, things like the, the material itself and how much hotter it's getting and whatnot. So all of those things are, are things that you have to learn as a CNC operator because you have to dial it in absolutely perfectly. Both skills are certainly complementary. And if you, uh, if you have one skill set, I highly recommend learning the other. It, it's certainly worthwhile. Were there, there any aspects of, of this series that, that stood out to you in such a way that you want to in- incorporate them in your own work processes and, and the path going forward, crafting your own timepieces? It's, it's one of those videos that I'll, I'll be returning to a bunch of times because there are enough details in there that it, it's tough sort of on, on first or second watching to get all of the information out of it, particularly when there are things that maybe they're not focusing on. So in particular, details about finishing and getting surface textures uh, the way that I want them, uh, stuff like that. I'm starting to form stronger opinions about what textures certain surfaces should look like. So places where certain things should be black polished, certain things should be frosted or um, textured in some way, you know, whether I like Geneva stripes on certain things or not. Um, they're all things that... You know, I, the problem is that I like a lot of these things and I like the way that other people have executed them, but you can't put all of them into a watch, right? You have to make a decision. Your main plate, is it going to be, is it going to have Geneva stripes on it? Well, that's great. But if you do that, you can't frost it, right? And that's going to have a very different look than the Geneva stripes. Both look great, but you know, you can't do both on your watch. If you're going to use black polishing, that's great. It looks fabulous, but it also means that all of those steel surfaces that are similar to it are going to need to be black polished. Otherwise, it's going to look weird, right? If you're bluing screws, like we've talked about certain watch movements in the past where some screws have been blued and some haven't been. And I think that that's a, a detriment to the watch where you know you need to make a decision as to what you're going to do with it. And if you're going to blue the screws, that's great. It looks wonderful. looks amazing. But you need to blue the screws. You can't leave some of them as, you know, you can't really leave some of them silver and some of them blued without it looking a little bit odd. So it was certainly, you know, some of the decisions that they were making, some of the uh, the things that they were doing, it, w- it forced me to think about that a little bit more myself and how I want to deal with that in my own watches. And I'm starting, I'm starting to become more opinionated in it, which I think is important when it comes to designing. You have to be, you have to be opinionated when it comes to a design. Mm-hmm. I have more of a problem with the, the chemical bluing that leaves some blue and, and some white yeah. polish. But I, I think you can achieve harmony in having both blued and blued and then polished. So you get the, the white metal revealed again, screws within a movement. And I would say a, a great point in case would, would be Dufour's simplicity, mm. where anywhere where you have the screws set against the nickel silver, they're, they've been polished again so that all the bluing is removed and you get that nice bright white. And then anywhere where he has a, a brass plate affixed to the movement, 
for say the this, the number that the watch is or, or his own uh, name on the, the watch itself those are blue because it serves up a really nice contrast uh, against the the brass whereas the or it might even be gold pardon me i, I apologize yeah, for yeah, if, if those are sure I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they yeah. are gold as well yeah, yeah. Um, but the the gold on blue uh, has a very nice contrast to it and uh, i think having blued if you were to blue all the screws in the movement you would actually rob uh, that bit of aesthetic from from that area of the watch and that's that's a good point and that's actually another thing that you have to be opinionated on whether you want to mix colors whether you want to mix those metal colors with of having some gold metal and some white metal, and one of the again one of the things that I'm starting to feel is that I pushing less and less towards having different colors, different you know different metals like that. Whether you know some of it's going to be gold in color, some of it's going to be white in color. I'm not you know I'm pushing away from that. I would much rather have it um, you know done differently. I think there's different you know obviously this is his design. You know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh, argue that Philippe should have done something differently there in his watch. I probably would have distinguished those things in a different way. Um, so instead of having gold and, and silver colors, I would have probably chosen texture differences between them, you know, to change the look of that. And I would rather see, you know, the blued screws everywhere because frankly, I think blued screws on nickel silver looks amazing. Right. And yes, you're right. It's different than the blued screws on gold, but I would rather, you know, I'd rather sort of keep that, that harmony there. As I said, having an opinion in your design is important. Everybody is going to have a different opinion, which is great. You know, that's why my watch is not going to look the same as a Grubel 4Z or a Philippe Dufour or a Kari Voodelainen or a Roger Smith, right? Everybody has their own style and they have their own opinions. And, you know, these sorts of videos, watching these people do these things, watching them talk about the decisions they're making and the processes, the decision-making process. It's helping me form my opinions and making me decide the things that will make my watch different. It's the same thing with Roger. Like I love a lot of the stuff that Roger does. And I also know that I would never, ever do it in my own watch. You know, I think that his designs are intentional. I think that they're great for his watches. And I would never take away from that. But at the same time, I wouldn't use them in my own watches. So, you know, the, this is this is where a lot of people get arguing on the internet. It's like, no, you're wrong. This is, you know, this is the best design ever. It's like, no, it's a great design. But it's Philippe's design or it's Roger's design or it's Kari's design. And hopefully mine will be, you know, will be solid enough that somebody will look at it and go, oh, that's Chris's design. And that's, that fits within the design language that he's chosen for his watches. Yeah, there are areas where you could make objective cases as to whether something is better than another, but in a lot of ways, when it comes down to aesthetics, mm-hmm. so much of it is is subjective. But in terms of movements that are uh, have have a different take on color and finish and, and whatnot, what did you think of the the new Ming piece that was uh, released recently on uh, the way that he reworked the the Pazis Seven Thousand and One? Yeah, this new watch from Ming, he's gone off and. Um, I don't know the process that he's used for darkening this movement. Um, My guess would be a dark rhodium, a black rhodium. Oh, actually, I just found it here. It's a black chrome plating. Oh, wow. I have not heard of a chrome plating on a watch before. Yeah. That's that's, an interesting take. That is surprising. Uh, So two things that he's done here. One, he's given it a matte finish. So it looks like it's maybe a, a light bead blasted finish. And then on top of that, the dark chrome. So it leaves a dark matte finish on the movement plates. 
And it's meant that the all of the wheels uh, stand out quite a bit from the uh, from the part uh, as well as the screws. And uh, I like the look of it. I again, it's something that I don't think I would ever do for one of my own watches, but I like the look of it. I like the the extreme contrast that he's created here. I dislike the um, the choice of it looks like he's gone and used a laser to um, uh, to laser engrave his logo on the um, what's that the ratchet wheel yeah the ratchet wheel and I I don't think that matches quite as well with the matte chrome finish that he's got I think it can look good but I don't think it match I don't think it matches up as well in this case as it could uh, I, it's almost as if he should have maybe done a matte chrome finish on the wheel and then used the laser to reveal the silver colored steel underneath it or something else. So I don't think that quite matches up as well, but I, I like the high contrast here. I, again, I, it's not something that I don't, I don't think I would use it on a movement, but I, I like the way that it looks. And it's a, a solid caliber that he, he's chosen as well. Oh, Trust, yeah. Trusty and reliable. This is a 7,001, well, now owned by, by Eta, so the Eta 7001. And uh, for any watchmakers out there, if you ever try to replace parts in a Bazza 7001 with parts from an Eta 7001, uh, you will quickly find that that, uh, that they are not, not directly interchangeable. Uh, yeah, I've uh, run into that, that trouble before. Speaking of Ming, he and uh, Nicholas uh, Bowman Scarsgill were on the virtual time for a pint a few weeks ago. And that was excellent. It was, In fact, they're there were a few interesting discussions there about design because Ming is one of those people, he spent a lot of time thinking about watch design and thinking about how he wants his watches to look. And he he is very opinionated and very intentional about his design. And I, I respect that about him. Again, they're not necessarily the design choices that I would make, and that's great. I you know I don't want to see everybody else doing the same thing that I would do. And uh, he's he's made some made some interesting decisions. Uh, for instance, it, like his dials are very minimalist. You often don't even like it takes a you have to sort of do a double take to even find his name on the on the dials sometimes. And so, you know, I I like what he's done. I, I liked the conversation that they were having on that um, on that episode. So we'll we'll make sure to put a link to that um, the YouTube video of uh, of that conversation because there was some really good conversation there about. Uh, about design choices and and sort of intentionality in, in design. Yeah, his dials are, are so distinctive. He he could actually get away without having his name on there at all. That was how the the conversation originally started. Was that there were certain watches where you can take all the branding off of it. Oh, that's what it was. It was Nicholas's new uh, Garrick watch that he had uh, commissioned, and they they decided not to put the logo on the front of the watch at all. But you can look at that watch and it's impossible not to realize who made that watch. You know, the, the design elements, the, the hands that are in there, the dial, it is very obvious as to who made that watch. And, you know, there are certain watches that will stand out like that. There are others where you look at it and it's like, okay, this is pretty generic, you know, especially a lot of the dive watches, for instance. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not a big dive watch fan. I, I don't have any need for one and I don't like the, the looks of them. But you could take most dive watches and take the branding off of them and you wouldn't be able to tell one from the other. You know, you wouldn't be able to say, oh, that is, you know, whatever. You know, that's a, that's the, the Rolex version of this or that's the, the whatever, right? It's, they're, they're fairly 
they're fairly generic. <laughs> I think the reason Rolex probably jumped to your mind first there is it seems like almost everything is a, a derivation of the the Rolex Submariner in, the, yeah, in that particular absolutely. space. Yeah, absolutely, and that's and that's a, a huge problem. It's meant that, especially the hands. The hands are the thing that that I really I really notice on that. And you know everybody's copied it, and but it's meant that it doesn't stand out as much in the field. Which you know I guess good and bad. It's uh, you know if you're Rolex, I'm sure it annoys them. Um, because it means that your your watch doesn't stand out as much. But at the same time, they have other watches which are very, very distinct and people haven't copied as much. Yeah, what I, f- I find interesting about that too is, is I actually prefer the the hands-on the Rolex Milsa, the, the sword hands, as opposed to the, the Mercedes hands that are, are more common. And yeah, for whatever reason, those hands have, have migrated to all manner of, of different Divers watches in air quotes because uh, you get watches for ten or twenty, thirty dollars that look or basically have that that identical aesthetic. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, uh, Ming stuff is is great. I love the looks of it, and and I have a huge amount of respect for what he's doing, especially the way he's built that brand up over the last couple of years. Again, Nick as well. You know, he's the principal at Fears, and he's again he's opinionated about his design. In his case, a lot of the design that he's using is you know, stuff that he's taken from the back catalog of Fears watches because, you know, he's been, he has a brand that's been around since 1844. And so he's able to sort of delve into that design language and use it. Now he's also bringing in some of his own taste and his own design language into the, into the pieces, which is great because you can't entirely stick to watches that are 150 years old. It means that he has a distinct design, design language and a lot of his watches, you can take a look at them and know exactly whose watch it is. Just, you know, removing all the branding just because of those elements that he's he's pulled from their earlier their earlier watches. Yeah, I haven't had a chance to catch up yet on that virtual get-together for Time for a Point. So I'm looking forward to, to hearing more about what Nick and, and Ming both had to, to say. Yeah, and there's another one since then as well. But Yeah, well, I'm, I'm way behind. As you, as you know, I've, I'm... I'm actually behind on your YouTube channel yeah. as well. So, and I've dear listener, uh, my, my co-host is a horrible, horrible friend, and he hasn't even caught up on the videos that we've been producing for for Low and Design. So, we'll we'll put a link for the rest of you who who you know are better friends than uh, than John is, <laughs> and who have uh, who've actually got a lot watched. of balls in the air right now. <laughs> just just weave it into my my kids' yeah, school kids education. School session yeah, thing. Exactly, there it should be a regular regular part of that. But having having said that, you're you're not going to be able to miss the episode on the seventh, though. Oh yeah, why is that? Well, you're going to be on it. Oh, okay then. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right. I'm I'm not going to be able to miss the one on June seventh. Yes, please don't miss that one. I won't. I'll be there. And yeah. I hope to see all of you there as well. Yeah, we're going to be taking over the the uh, time for a pint virtual get together. Well, I say taking over. Chris and Matt are still going to be there as well, and they they think they're going to be running it, but we're uh, we are going to be guests on there, and who knows? Maybe we'll uh, we'll end up taking it over and turning it into a do an off-hours episode instead. I think Matt and I are, are going to be the, the guests. It's going to be a, a Chris Mann versus Chris Manning. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is going to be weird. In fact, as, as we've been sending emails back and forth, it's a bit odd looking at the email chain, and I was trying to find a, a particular message that Chris sent me, and I my brain entirely skipped over every message that he had sent because my brain just saw Chris Mann and then just skipped down to the next thing. So it is a bit odd dealing with somebody who has nearly an identical name to you. Yeah, it should be fun though. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I am too. It's it's going to be a fun uh, fun time. I think I've already picked out what my my watches that I'm going to be bringing along and talking about. And maybe we'll uh, if we have time, we'll get into some of the other things we do as well. 
we'll, we'll keep that secret yeah. until the until they get together. Although if you're listening to this on the day and date that we publish, uh, we probably jumped the gun by a, by a day as well. So if you're interested, usually the tickets for the Time for Pint virtual get-togethers go out to the world uh, late Wednesday, uh, usually sort of 11 o'clock British summertime is when they've been going out. If you're listening to this on the Tuesday or the Wednesday morning, then uh, those tickets aren't available yet. But uh, there will be tickets available um, usually for 95 people, I think, to watch. And uh, you'll be able to uh, to get those and sign up. There are free tickets. You, you do have to sign up, but they are free. And uh, when the sign-up for that goes up, we'll, uh, we'll make sure to tweet about it and to um, uh, post about it on Instagram and whatnot. So if you're following us either in either place, then uh, you'll, you'll be able to get a link to that. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>